Welcome to the April 28, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the efficacy of canakinumab in children and young adults with sickle cell anemia. Learn more about the use of donor-derived multiple leukemia antigen-specific T-cell therapy to prevent relapse in post-transplant patients with ALL. And discuss the defects in nasopharyngeal mucosal immunity in patients with severe combined immunodeficiency after hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled A Randomized Placebo-Controlled Double-Blind Trial of Canakinumab in Children and Young Adults with Sickle Cell Anemia by David Rees from King's College London in the United Kingdom and colleagues. Sickle cell anemia, or SCA, is a common severe inherited disorder caused by a point mutation in the beta-globin gene creating a defective hemoglobin, which then polymerizes in its deoxygenated form. This polymerization causes intravascular red cell lysis, resulting in anemia, chronic pain, and fatigue, as well as acute vaso-occlusive events during disease flares. The average life expectancy of SCA patients is significantly reduced due to accumulation of severe and organ damage. It is likely that the release of intracellular contents from sickled red cells causes an ongoing inflammatory response in patients with SCA that correlates with disease severity and risk of early death. Specifically, it has been shown that pro-inflammatory markers including leukocyte count and C-reactive protein are elevated in both pediatric and adult SCA patients. A growing body of evidence also suggests that the increased inflammation in these patients is due to upregulated activity of the inflammasome, a multiprotein oligomer expressed in myeloid cells. This inflammatory cascade includes the cleavage of pro-interleukin-1-beta and pro-IL-18 into their active forms, a process that perpetuates the inflammatory process. To date, the therapeutic targeting of inflammasome effector activity in SCA has been limited to IL-1 beta blockade in human transgenic SCA mouse models. Canakinumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody targeting IL-1 beta, with demonstrated activity in several rheumatic disorders, including systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis and acute gouty arthritis. The aim of the current study was to test the safety and efficacy of canakinumab in children and young adults with SCA and associated chronic pain and inflammation. The authors performed a Phase II trial that enrolled a total of 49 participants between 8 and 20 years old with homozygous hemoglobin SS or hemoglobin S with beta-0 thalassemia and a history of vaso-occlusive pain episodes. Study subjects had a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein greater than 1 mg per liter at screening, and detectable background pain. All but one patient were on stable doses of hydroxyurea therapy. Participants were randomized one-to-one to receive six doses of 4 mg per kilogram canakinumab, or placebo, administered subcutaneously every 28 days during the double-blinded period, followed by an open-label period when they received canakinumab every 28 days. 
The primary endpoint was the reduction of sickle cell-associated daily pain, averaged over 8 to 12 weeks, compared to baseline. E-diaries were used to record the patient's self-assessed pain levels throughout the 24 weeks of study. Secondary and exploratory endpoints included the daily degree of perceived fatigue, assessed using a visual analog scale from 0 to 10, analgesic use, and school or work attendance. Safety was assessed during the screening and treatment phases, as well as in the follow-up period. Even though the study did not meet the primary endpoint of a significant reduction in SCA-associated pain, canakinumab-treated patients demonstrated marked reductions in biomarkers of inflammation, SCA-related adverse events, and the number and duration of hospitalizations compared to placebo-treated patients. Furthermore, patients receiving canakinumab had fewer and shorter hospitalizations and showed improvements in pain intensity, fatigue, and the number of absences from school or work. A post hoc analysis of patients younger than 18 years revealed that patients with a body mass index less than the 20th percentile had significant weight gain when treated with canakinumab. Overall, patients treated with canakinumab reported adverse events less frequently and had an overall lower rate of infections compared to patients treated with placebo. Pain was the most common adverse event. Importantly, no new safety signals were reported for canakinumab in this patient population. Taken together, these findings suggest that selective blockade of IL-1-beta-mediated inflammation by canakinumab can provide therapeutic benefits to adolescent and young adult patients with SCA, with no major safety concerns. In an accompanying commentary, Enrico Novelli from the University of Pittsburgh notes that the study by Rees and collaborators has opened a new front in the fight against SCA by targeting sterile inflammation, which is emerging as a druggable pathogenic mechanism in multiple fields, including cardiovascular diseases. He adds that the promising findings on several evaluated endpoints, alongside a lack of significant toxicity, lay the groundwork for future studies on the effects of anti-inflammatory drugs in SCA and the connection between inflammation and pain in SCA. If IL-1 beta blockade and other inflammatory therapies continue to demonstrate therapeutic value in SCA, learning how to incorporate them into existing therapeutic strategies to arrive at an effective multidrug regimen will be of significant value. Novelli suggests that hydroxyurea may become the backbone of SCA treatment, upon which other treatments may be stacked to achieve improved disease control. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the Blood article entitled Donor-Derived Multiple Leukemia Antigen-Specific T-Cell Therapy to Prevent Relapse Post-Transplant in Patients with ALL by Swati Naik from Baylor College of Medicine in Texas and colleagues. Hematopoietic stem cell transplant, or HSCT, can be a curative treatment option for patients with high-risk ALL. However, relapse remains a major challenge and the primary cause of treatment failure. At present, donor lymphocyte infusions are the mainstay of relapse prevention after allogeneic HSCT for leukemia. However, the effectiveness of this approach in ALL has been limited, and any potential benefit must be weighed against the risk of graft-versus-host disease. Thus, there is an urgent, unmet need for interventions that can improve the outcome of ALL patients after HSCT. 
Prior research has shown that the safety of donor lymphocyte infusions can be enhanced by minimizing alloreactive T-cells and amplifying the tumor-specific T-cell counts. As one example, investigators from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center have previously shown that CD8-positive T-cells, genetically modified to express a high-affinity Wilms tumor antigen 1-specific T-cell receptor, can be used to minimize the risk of graft-versus-host disease and enhance transferred T-cell survival in patients with AML in remission following allogeneic HSCT. In the current report, investigators from Baylor College of Medicine hypothesized that T-cells which recognize multiple leukemia-specific antigens typically expressed in ALL may be effective in preventing relapse in patients with high-risk B or T-cell ALL after allogeneic HSCT without inducing severe GVHD. To test their hypothesis, they first developed an ex vivo strategy to selectively enrich for donor-derived T-cells recognizing known tumor antigens. In this process, peripheral blood mononuclear cells from donors were co-cultured with monocyte-derived dendritic cells that were pulsed with antigenic peptides from three different ALL antigens, WT1, PRAME, and SURVIVIN. And T-cells recognizing these antigens were expanded in T-cell medium supplemented with IL-7, IL-12, IL-15, and IL-6. The resulting T-cell product was termed Multiple Leukemia Antigen-Specific T-cells, or MLSTs. These expanded T-cells lacked reactivity against non-malignant patient-derived cells. The authors then conducted a clinical trial testing the effects of a single infusion of MLSTs in leukemia patients who were at least 30 days post-allotransplant. Fifteen patients were enrolled in the trial, and 11 patients were successfully infused with MLSTs derived from their donor, including nine patients with BALL, one patient with TALL, and one patient with mixed phenotype acute leukemia. Patients were infused with one of three doses of MLSTs, in a dose range of 0.5 to 2 times 10 to the 7th per meter squared. They also had the option to receive up to six additional infusions of MLSTs if they remained in complete remission. None of the patients received lymphodepleting chemotherapy prior to MLSTs. Six of eight evaluable patients remain in long-term complete remission after treatment with MLSTs after a median observation of 46.5 months. To investigate the contribution of MLSTs to sustained remission, the authors evaluated the frequency of tumor-reactive T-cells in patient peripheral blood before and after infusion and found that patients in remission had an increased frequency of tumor-reactive T-cells shortly after infusion. These T-cells exhibited activity against both targeted and non-targeted tumor-associated antigens, pointing to in vivo antigen spreading. Interestingly, in vivo amplification was not observed in the two patients who relapsed. Importantly, dose-limiting toxicity, acute graft-versus-host disease, cytokine release syndrome, or other notable adverse events were not observed, with the exception of one patient who developed moderate chronic graft-versus-host disease five months post-infusion. Taken together, these findings suggest that the infusion of donor-derived MLSTs after HSCT is a feasible and safe strategy to improve disease control and prevent relapse in patients with ALL. In an accompanying commentary, Michael Bishop, 
from the University of Chicago, notes that the findings from this early clinical study are very encouraging because they demonstrate that MLSTs are relatively safe and that they can be scaled up for larger groups of patients. While the correlation of MLST treatment with remission persistence is encouraging, Bishop cautions that these early findings still need to be confirmed in studies with larger patient numbers. He also believes that it would be of interest to investigate the effectiveness of MLSTs in relapsed ALL patients, for which there are currently no effective treatment options, aside from anti-CD19 CAR T-cells for B-cell ALL. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will review a report published in Blood entitled Defects in Mucosal Immunity and Nasopharyngeal Dysbiosis in HSC-Transplanted Skid Patients with IL-2 Receptor Gamma or JAK3 Deficiency by Pedro Gonçalves from Pasteur Institute in France and colleagues. Research to date has shown that both innate and adaptive lymphocytes play important roles in mucosal defense and protection from pathogen invasion. Multiple studies have found that subsets of diverse innate lymphoid cells, or ILCs, are enriched at mucosal surfaces, where they promote barrier defense and tissue regeneration after infection, and regulate microbial commensal communities. Hematopoietic stem cell transplantation can be a life-saving treatment for patients with severe combined immune deficiency, or SCID. There are two groups of SCID patients. In the first, SCID results from defects in the antigen receptor recombination pathway. These patients harbor immature lymphoid precursors in the thymus and bone marrow and are often referred to as T-, B-, NK+, SCID. In contrast, Patients with mutations in the common gamma-chain gene IL2RG or the Janus kinase JAK3 gene are referred to as T- B+, NK- and lack lymphoid precursors in the thymus and bone marrow. Pre-transplant conditioning is frequently employed to facilitate the success of HSCT in SCID patients. T-, B-, NK+, patients may receive either myeloablation that can enhance myeloid and lymphoid reconstitution or reduced-intensity conditioning that may eliminate competitive but abnormal thymocyte precursor cells, or NK cells. T-, B+, NK- skid patients are generally not cytoreduced prior to HSCT. As a result, lymphoid lineages engraft rapidly, but myeloid reconstitution is less robust. Interestingly, reconstitution of innate lymphoid cells, or ILC, at tissue sites such as the nasopharynx are typically enhanced in patients who undergo myeloablative preconditioning. Myeloablated T-, B-, NK+, patients have been shown to recover much higher levels of tissue lymphoid cells than non-myeloablated T-, B+, NK- patients. In the current study, the authors studied mucosal immunity in two groups of skid patients after HSCT in an effort to better understand the specific roles of innate lymphocytes at mucosal surfaces. The goal of their work was to assess the impact of hematopoietic reconstitution on mucosal barrier function in skid patients treated with HSCT with or without myeloablation. The study analyzed a cohort of 21 skid patients who were successfully treated with HSCT at Necker Hospital in France since 1977. 
all HSCT-treated skid patients showed successful donor hematopoietic reconstitution and recovered T-cell immunity. The patients were divided into two groups, T-minus, B-plus, NK-minus skid patients that received non-myeloablative HSCT and a mixed skid population that did not receive myeloablative preconditioning. Nasopharyngeal swabs were collected from patients, along with blood samples during routine visits, and analyzed for total IgA, IgE, IgD, IgM, IgG1, IgG2, IgG3, and IgG4. In addition, nasopharyngeal mucin levels, eosinophilic cationic protein, and total protein contents were determined from swab samples. Bacterial quantification was performed by quantitative RT-PCR assays, and 16S ribosomal RNA sequencing was used to characterize the bacterial strains present in mucosal samples. The authors found that patients treated with allogeneic HSCT without pretransplant cytoreductive chemotherapy had a defect in NK cells and type 2 innate lymphoid cells, but not innate lymphoid cell precursors. Furthermore, this group of patients had a reduction in circulating NK cells, ILC2 cells, and Th2 cells, a decrease in the type 2 cytokines IL-5 and IL-13 in the nasal mucosa, and a marked deficiency in local mucosal IgA. These findings correlated with a reduction in IgA-coded nasopharyngeal bacteria and an increase in nasopharyngeal microbe coding with IgG and IgD alone which is in contrast to healthy individuals whose nasopharyngeal microbes were typically coated with IgA in combination with IgD or IgG. Furthermore, the total nasopharyngeal bacterial load was increased, but of diminished diversity with a predominance of pathobionts, suggesting that ILC2 is indeed required for adequate immunological surveillance. Interestingly, Intravenous Ig replacement therapy led to partial normalization of nasopharyngeal Ig profiles and restoration of microbial diversity. Taken together, these findings suggest an important role for type 2 immunity and or local IgA antibody production in the function of nasopharyngeal mucosal barrier and maintenance of its microbial diversity. In an accompanying commentary, Andrew Jennery from Great North Children's Hospital in the United Kingdom notes that the findings of Gonsalves and collaborators emphasize the importance of long-term follow-up of patients who undergo HSCT for inborn errors of immunity, since successful transplantation can still result in incomplete restoration of immunity. He further notes that the finding that ILC2 cells are missing in non-conditioned IL-2 receptor gamma or JAK3 deficient skid patients is not surprising since JAK3 deficiency has been shown to block ILC differentiation in the bone marrow at the ILC precursor stage. Given the growing population of patients receiving JAK inhibitors to treat inflammatory or autoinflammatory conditions, Jennery believes that future studies should explore where long-term treatment with these agents can lead to dysbiosis and potentially adverse clinical consequences. It is possible that the coexistence of minor immunological defects such as those described in the current study, may magnify the potential pathological consequences in patients on prolonged immunosuppression. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. 
Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.